Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone this is uh the three questions uh the um award-winning podcast i'm saying this just because in the future i know it's going to win awards and when people listen to this 20 years from now uh to say uh who's this guy talking to nick offerman i will have won awards um and i'm talking to nick offerman thanks for all the trophies yeah thanks everybody this will make up for the empty space in my heart (laughs) Hey, let's talk about the empty space in your heart, Nick Offerman. All right. <laughs> How much time oh. you got? Oh, I don't know. So anyway, hi. hi. Uh, we were just talking about how excited we are to actually be doing a podcast so we actually get to speak to someone. It is. It's a strange, uh, it's, it's a strange silver lining to yeah. the quarantine. You, you get to have people come over and visit. Uh, and it's one of those things that, you know, I'm in touch with my friends and, and we reach out and we're taking care of each other, you know, how everybody doing okay. But to actually schedule these, it's like scheduling a play date for your kids yeah. where it's like, Ooh, I get to talk to Andy today. And, and yeah. hopefully there will be laughs and maybe some tears. <laughs> well, I guess I could cry. <laughs> I mean, I could, you know, I could treat this like any other webcam session that I do. And those usually involve tears. Well, let's, let's see where it tears. goes. All right. Have you always been a very sort of, because you're, you have the kind of a laconic aspect to your personality, but, I, but are you a big social kind of person? Like, have you always kind of been somebody that needed people? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I grew up in a big family and in hindsight, uh, I, it occurred to me, um, my mom, my mom's whole side of the family um, run a, a farm in, in Illinois. And so it, I grew up in this big sort of community where we would make big meals together. Everybody's a gardener and like very self-sufficient family. And when I went away to theater school uh, and then became a professional person, actor and carpenter, in cities, mainly Chicago and, uh, and LA. In hindsight, I, I put together my own wood shop in Los Angeles, but I also was always part of a small theater company. Mm-hmm. And looking back, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm always trying to replicate my family, the community experience of like 
many hands make light work. Let's get a bunch of us together and then we can do the dishes a lot faster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a friend who's like had a pretty tumultuous childhood, but there were just tons of kids around. And so she's she's just decided I'm going to have as many kids as I want because it's the only place she feels at peace, I guess, is in the chaos of yeah. of of a million kids. You know, there's something um, there's something uh, I don't know soothing. I think about when you when you have that sort of circus uh, atmosphere, you, it's understood that nothing will get done neatly or succinctly. Mm-hmm. But a lot of stuff will get done, and yeah. and life is kind of like that. And so, yeah. it um, I don't know. I've always it, it ties into being laconic. I think is is I've always had a very stress free nature of like, well, just we're just going to do our best every day and work hard, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to pay the taxes in April. And you were you were like that when you were little too, right? I, yeah, I started. I started earning wages at age three. So wow, the tax man has been uh, at my doorstep for. What were you doing at three? Uh, well, shoe uh, shines at the at the at the railroad station. Split in time between uh, my cooperage, where I was building small barrels and casks <laughs> for the <three>. local <laughs> rye distillery, <laughs> and and I'd go down I'd get to, the to school by pit. riding in my own barrel down the river. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I mean, um, that is kind of though, uh, you know, uh, are there, well, what I was going to say, uh, is are there like high strung people in your family? Um, I don't think so. Um, there's, there's one, uh, we had one grumpy family member, uh, and he or she, uh, ah, good one eventually cheered up um in their early 40s they they found a, ro- a finally like a romantic partner who's really great oh good and um and and everybody you know we uh we all would pay this romantic partner a lot of money to stay <laughs> because it, it's really uh cheer, oh. cheered up the the village i think this is that's going to be really hard for your family to figure that out who you're talking about? It, it you is. So, you were so cryptic. They'll have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you were. You're from Manuka, That's Illinois, right. which is. Uh, are we in the same? Because I'm from Yorkville, Illinois, which is a very similar town. Um, although I think Yorkville is maybe closer to bigger things, you know, like Aurora and bigger towns than Manuka. I think Manuka. Definitely had that kind of in the middle of cornfields feeling more so than Yorkville. Yeah, for sure. York, Yorkville was is a big. I mean, I wouldn't call it a city, but it's a it's a like exponentially bigger town. Than yeah, Manuka. Um, and and but there's something. Yeah, there's something about Manuka that um, I always say that it's an hour. It's an hour and fifty years southwest of Chicago. Yeah, it just felt growing up felt like we were stuck in the fifties. Yeah, Yorkville was kind of the same way. Like I, because my version of that is it's about an hour west on what used to be the Eisenhower, the I five. But I, you know, I said, but it might as well be three hours or four hours because for as much as the 
city impacted our lives aside from television, you know, watching television, but it, you know, nobody went into the city. Like we're going into the city to hang out and have dinner. It's like, that would be like saying, you know, we're going into a war zone. You know, I mean, people were just terrified of the city. It's amazing. Once I, once I graduated college and moved to Chicago and I'd go home to see my folks for dinner and said, holy cow, like it's 45 minutes when there's no yeah. traffic. And now in Los Angeles, that 45 minutes is how long it takes me to get to the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, growing up, it was like going to the Cubs game or going like once a year, we'd go at Christmas to see Michigan Avenue or go the to see a tree at Marshall Fields. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And it we yeah, like you said, we, we might as well have been going to Oz or yeah. London or something. Have your have your people been in Manuka for years and years and years going back? In the area, um, both uh, both set both my parents' parents grew up like uh, my dad's folks grew up in Joliet and Lockport, mm-hmm. and my mom's folks grew up um, confusingly directly south of Chicago is another small town called Mokina. Uh huh. Also uh, off Route 80, uh, not to be confused with Manuka, but that's right. that's where. So they all grew up in uh, pretty rural farming, like hardware-based families. Um, and actually, when the uh, when the quarantine hit in, in uh, early March, I was just starting to shoot an episode of Lisa Kudrow's uh, "Who Do You Think You Are" program. Mm-hmm. Where, where they find some story in your ancestry and like take you around to unfold the mystery of the story. Yeah, I really I want that to happen. I want something to do that to me because I just know it's yeah, it's really neat. And their researchers yeah. are aston- astonishing. Megan had already done one where they found uh, her great great grandmother in Macon, Georgia, and there was this whole story where the, there was a letter in the city hall archive in philadelphia that the like the mayor of philadelphia had written to pardon megan's great-great-grandfather for being an <laughs> abolitionist in georgia in the Civil oh wow War. it was really crazy so um it's so good beyond, that she was on the right side at least it's it is it's it's nicer i mean i'm sure we all have you know i'm sure we all have angels and demons and yeah, the whole yeah. spectrum but but yeah, so beyond my the grandparents, um, I, uh, I I know that it's been agricultural based family by and large, um, originating mostly in Ireland and England. Yeah. Did uh, but your dad was a, a teacher, correct? Yeah, he's a, he grew up on a farm four miles from my mom, and uh, and became a school teacher. Uh, taught uh, junior high social studies. And was was like voted. He's he's incredibly charming. He was voted yeah. the kid's favorite teacher, and he would like drive a school bus and he coached sports. And he he was a, a great Renaissance man. Still is. Did was he still actively involved in the day to day farming, or was that sort of no no? His family his family kind of broke up. His folks got divorced. Um, his dad became the mayor of Manuka for a while when I was a kid. Oh, you're so, a real blue blood, Dad. Not a big deal. Um, <laughs> it actually did come in handy a couple times when I got pulled over. I uh, bet. Late at I night. bet. 
but um but yeah he uh, he's an incredible worker my dad and so um throughout my life he and then i both worked for my mom's family on their farm when they would need hired help we'd uh, mm-hmm. we then that was a incredibly wonderful part of my childhood was like i would i would it was the kind of thing i'd pay to go like drive a combine or or work in the bean field um and they they had pigs till i was in high school i loved it i was obsessed with it and then when they began to pay me wages to like work with them what it's like getting an acting job where you're like yeah yeah (laughs) okay okay you're gonna give me money and a sandwich yeah (laughs) yeah it is because i don't you know you get used to it when you grow up in a rural area, but there is so much seasonal work on a farm where there are days where there's not a lot to do. Mm-hmm. And then there are days where there's too much for, you know, the 10 extra people that you get there to do. Yeah. I mean, um, a lot of it depends on things that are out of your control, like the weather or the the locusts or the market. You know, sometimes you yeah. you harvest your crops but the prices are too low so you sit on them and stuff like yeah, that yeah yeah it's complicated it's it you don't you know i i i personally i don't think like it's a weird l- l- seemingly low stress job but the stress of just the tightrope stress of it you know day to day you're not getting on a subway and you're not having a boss yell at you right. but you are always you know at the mercy of so many other things and uh and it is kind of like you just make money at one point like you grow shit sell it get that big check and then that's it yeah yeah it is i mean i really admire uh my my family members that do it because you're self-employed there's no you know job security and like you said it's a tightrope situation where anything across the whole year can wipe out your year's income. Yeah. And and everybody you know has loans from the bank so they can afford this big expensive equipment. It's it takes a, a lot of of pluck and gumption and elbow grease uh and they're uh, you know it's it's uh, for me that's become my soapbox issue when I can I try to uh focus the attention of my audience back on the small local farmers uh, in the country who have been forgotten by industrial farming uh, because they, they are truly heroic and especially in a, in a situation like a global pandemic, you realize how valuable, like what a national defense uh, commodity is your local food. Yeah. You know, when, when the airlines get shut down, suddenly you're like, oh, shit, <laughs> somebody plant some blueberries. <laughs> um, now, you uh, you know, obviously you didn't stay. I mean, at a certain point, there had to become a, a creeping realization that you didn't want to be a farmer. No. And when and when does that happen? And 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 talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, it's it is interesting because um, yeah, uh, I, I was thrilled as like a teenager to get to work on a farm, um, and I also framed houses. I worked as a framing carpenter, and I did some black topping. So I really loved uh, b- 
being physically able to earn like a, a man's wage uh, yeah. at, at age 16 um, with, with like tool skills and just, you know, raw strength and stupidity. Yeah. Uh, but well, and also, you know how to do shit. Like, you know how to you kind of like, you know how to do shit that will come in handy when the shit goes down. Absolutely. As opposed to like, you know, lots of people that like don't even know how to fry an egg, yeah. you know? You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? It's that, like and that, you do. that really comes from for me from my farm family. You know, yeah, everybody knows how to like. Oh, you know, the truck won't start. Uh, I know how to start a fire, so we can keep warm until yeah. Aunt D comes and picks us up. <laughs> um, but yeah, w- w- but then when it came to like choosing a life path or a vocation or a, a college, you know. Um, I think I think really um, just very organically, the the small town incredible conservatism, yeah. the the misogyny, the homophobia, the racism. I was just very aware that my little town was not good. Uh, it, it was not the real world. It was yeah. sort of stuck in a bubble, and. Um, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't incredibly perceptive in any way. I just had this gut, gut feeling of like I want to get I want to get out in the world and like I don't know uh, be more open minded and and entertain people or like get involved in the medicinal aspect of show business of like of theater of of holding up a mirror to society and like uh, you know I came to understand that people could get paid to act in plays and cities. And I was like, it, it's, I said, okay, that's, that's what I've been looking for. And, and the funny and what thing age is, is this about, Oh, this is uh, uh last couple of years of high school. Uh huh. Um, like one, once I found out you could get a degree as a theater actor and then like go to Chicago and get paid to do plays. I was like, Oh well, shit. If I had known that I would have, I would have, I would have moved there when I was 12 with my hobo (laughs) bindle. Um, Yeah. I could have set fires for people for extra money. (laughs) Exactly. But the, the funny thing is almost immediately when I got to college down in Champaign, Urbana, the university of Illinois, uh, I was there for two years. I, I I thought, I thought there was a, uh, an incredible musk around the the quad (laughs) that comes through on a zoom call. Even. Yorkville <laughs> Cla- class of uh, 85, um, 84 as a guess. So pretty good. Yeah. When, when were, what, what was your graduating year of high school? 88, 88. Okay. And, and so the, the crazy thing was as soon as I got to, as soon as I got out on my own, I had to like have a checkbook and, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Out all that my, weird, my parents yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. I immediately, I went to a payphone and called my dad and said, everything like, and, and please tell mom, everything you guys have been trying to teach me just landed. Like now that I'm no longer at home being spoiled by you, I get it. The simple lessons of decency and work ethic there, my parents did such an incredible job of because I was such a pain in the ass. I had three siblings, but I was by far the the biggest asshole. 
uh, pro- really the only asshole. And um, that like was me- just surly and difficult, or uh, more more nefarious. Like I was I was duplicitous. Yeah, I, I did everything I could to, to make everyone think I was like a golden. Uh, you know, I was like a captain of the football team. I was, I was, I would do just good enough as a student to get an A. Yeah. Like I was always uh, testing the rules. How yeah. much can I get away with and still emerge victorious or stay right. out of, stay out of jail? And then meanwhile, I, my cousin and I would be like, th- there's a great story where we did a bunch of graffiti and then we, we marked up the graffiti so that everyone would think the cheerleaders had done it. <laughs> so, you know, we were always, we were troublemakers. And then, and then the next day I was the student council president and I, I put together the committee to go clean up the graffiti. So I, I was, I was a Machiavellian. Right. It's um, like a, you're like a, uh, you know, like how they're, uh, firefighters that are also arsonists. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, is, is a, a part of human nature that is uh, fascinating and, and a conundrum. Yeah. But, but really, uh, as, as soon as I was responsible for myself, um, that's when everything shifted and I, and I began to, to say, okay, now I understand all of the heroic aspects of my family on the farm. Like, yeah, I don't want to stay there and be part of that sort of uh, closed minded community, but I'm going to take all these incredible life lessons. And to, to this day, I still aspire to be as, as hardworking and, and prudent as my family. Yeah. Um, when you are start to say, in Manuka, I want to be an actor. I'm going to go to theater school. Are you are you met with like, oh, la di da? Somebody's you know fancy or you know, not even. Um, it was so. I mean, it was so foreign. It was it was unheard of. And so even even when I wanted to do it, I didn't. Again, I learned in hindsight that what I was missing was any cultural. Um, I didn't have anybody cool in my entire sphere. Yeah. There was nobody handing me or like, here, this is David Byrne here. This is, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. this is Laurie Anderson. Check it yeah. out. I just had, I just had this uh, instinctive need to be like, I want to, I want to do showbiz. And so even for me, uh, I, it was an epiphany to learn that people did plays professionally in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. So when I announced that at home, my family, my mom and dad were actually really generous where they they said, look, this sounds crazy. It sounds like you just said you want to become an astronaut or something. Yeah, yeah. But you've always uh, applied yourself and done your best with whatever crazy idea you get after. So we will support your weird choice. Um, and But we just urge you to have some way to make money while you're chasing, you know, the cliche of like uh, a life in showbiz, have some way to pay your rent. And I said, okay, don't worry, mom and dad. <laughs> um, and then, you know, it's not like I need to open a war, a wood shop. Or <laughs> right. Exactly. 
And of course they were exactly right. And, um, and my, and the tool skills that I had learned from my dad and the rest of my family, uh, you know, paid my rent for many years. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you're at U of I and are you in theater right away? Are you in theater right off the bat? Yeah. They, they have a really nice program. They take 16 actors a year. They have this incredible facility designed by the same guy who designed Lincoln center. So it's, it's one block with four theaters all connected, like through the, the basement. And it's a big scene shop and costume shop. Um, and so I had to go audition to like get into the conservatory program. And it's funny, people always accuse me of false modesty when I say this, but I'm being completely honest. I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant that when I auditioned, they ask you for two monologues. I didn't even know what a monologue was. So one of my monologues was a scene of dialogue from a play where I played both parts. Like I, I just went in and was like, I was like, look, I'm super enthusiastic. Uh, I'm, I'm a complete babe in the woods. Yeah. And, and I, I swear to God, it's, it's like a sports team. You need, you've got a theater department where you're casting you know, plays and musicals for a season every year. So you need good looking people, talented people, and then you need beefy people to carry those other people on and off stage. Yes. Yes. And me and this other dude from Bolingbrook, uh, totally got in where they were like, okay, you guys sing and you're gorgeous. And then Nick, if you can just push the, uh, <laughs> the, the meat cart, yeah. great. stop right there. If you there. can just learn to do your old, your own old age makeup, <laughs> that'll be very helpful for us. Exactly. Because you're going to play old people. And that, and that's, uh, that's actually perfectly true. My, my first role was a 92 year old man named Farapont and three sisters. <laughs> and I did the most insane night of the living dead, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I had th- three lines about the samovar. <laughs> and nobody told you to take it down a notch. They, they just said, swing for the fences. Perfect. You got Here it. We are. We're, in, we're in Champaign-Urbana. Who cares? Yeah. Um, well, uh, is this, because I can only speak from my own experience. And my own experience, it was when, because I, I went to, I didn't do plays at, in our high school because they just were so dumb. Like they didn't do anything challenging. It was all like really like scripts that Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis turned down, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, um, and probably were cheap, like the cheap ones from the, from the, you know, cause you have to, they have to pay to do these plays. They have to license these plays. Yeah. We had, we had those as well. Um, yeah. Plays that seemingly written specifically for high schools. Yes. There, we, we did one called The Primetime Crime that was like Charlie's Angel. murder mystery or something? Or? All, oh, all, oh, all the TV oh, cops oh, wow. get together to solve a mystery. Wow. See, ours were even like more, like you said, had that time capsule kind of feel. Like they all seemed like all these plays had been written before anybody ever had oral sex or something. They just were all like, so and the one, like, I don't remember all of them, but the one that I remember just cause I can't believe that somebody went like, yeah, this, this was a good one. Boys and ghouls together. It was Halloween themed. boys and ghouls together. Uh, my, my brother played a mummy because he was six foot five and you know, wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> but but I didn't do plays. I did speech team, which I yeah, I don't know if Manuka, do you guys did you guys have speech team? We did. Yeah. We, we had a very minor league version of of all that stuff. So we I, I did that as well. Um, yeah. where uh the the I was in a category called extemporaneous, I guess. Yep. Where you just well, make up speeches, yeah. Yeah. And I learned a lot. I saw some incredibly talented people, um, you know, are my own age, and was like, "Oh, Jesus Christ!" Like they're yeah. they're they're ready, yeah, and uh, they're years ahead of me. And so I tried to do, you know, all the right things, but again, I just had no guidance. I I liken it to I also played the saxophone in in the band and jazz band, and the teachers that I had were fine band teachers, but once they taught you how to read the music and perform it competently, that was, that was where the education stopped. Yeah. You're on and your own. Years later, when I became more of a musician and I, I play guitar and do songs when I, when I tour, um, that I learned, Oh, the, the education should continue where yeah. you are taught to improvise and scales and, and all of that. And, the same thing with like speech team. I just had nobody sort of, I don't know, teaching me to tap into my own voice, uh, to my, to my own skill set, And so I, I was really, uh, you know, a, a clumsy, uh, freshman. Yeah. Yeah. I through. had a, I, I did prose, which is, you know, reading short stories. Um, and so it was, you know, which I, I didn't do the acting ones. I liked the fact that I could read it, you know, somehow. Yeah. And, and, uh, but going one year, I went to speech camp, speech team camp. And that was like my first exposure, truly, from coming from Yorkville, Illinois, to gay kids, to, I was kid you not, Jewish kids, yeah. to black kids. Like I just, you know, I had had such a sheltered, lily white, existence and i wonder if maybe you of i was kind of that same way for you i've said that i've said that very thing i mean yeah um and it's funny to say that about champagne urbana you know yeah um, but oh no it's a crazy town compared to you know 10 minutes outside of it yeah it's like morocco Um, yeah yeah and, and uh specifically all those things all all the minorities you know all the uh just all which are no longer it's no longer accurate all the uh the non-white people. Yeah. Yeah. Also in my class, I met my first Jewish people. Yeah. And and was like, Oh my God, I've, I've heard of you and read about you, but I hadn't like, they taught me what, uh, what locks was. Uh Uh, And I shook their hand. (laughs) I specifically remember having, when I, when I, my life became people with Jewish people thinking like, Oh yeah, people have an axe to grind with these guys. What's what's the like? I did like I didn't even fully understand. I, I mean, I'm sure that I grew up around some sort of casual anti-Semitism. Not enough that I could really remember because they were they didn't seem to you know there didn't seem to be a lot of like real heartfelt anti-Semitism. Just kind of lazy anti-Semitism. Yeah, but I I didn't even I could never I never could like sort of like absorb like, well, what's, what's the problem, you know? Sure. And, and it's funny. Most of, most of the people um, exuding the anti-Semitism or racism, if you put that question to them, they probably couldn't either. It's just, yeah, it's just yeah. 
I mean, it, I, I, I could sense the racism. Um, like, like when our when we would go play sports against Joliet schools. Yes. Um, and, and specific, you know, the the east side or the west side. You know, it's like uh, make sure take special care to with your wallet or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where those people are that steal things. And j- eventually I was like, oh, that's like there wasn't a lot of N word <clears throat> being tossed around, yeah. but but that was the version of it where I was like, yeah, oh. yeah. No, they know better than to say that. You you shouldn't say that word, you know, but yeah. But yeah, the, uh, yeah, no, because there were kids in grade school that used the <clears throat> word just sort of innocently, if that's if such a thing is the case. But they were kids, and that's the only word they knew for African American people. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, everyone else in the class kind of it was, you know, kids that didn't have the benefit of a very uh, comfortable upbringing let's just say and it was kind of shot it was like even you know when you're six and you hear somebody use that word you go you're not supposed to use that word yeah. and the kid's like what did i say you know i remember i remember that sick feeling of um because an otherwise like nice kid where you're like oh wait what jimmy that's- yeah 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 you shared you gave me one of your twinkies <laughs> and now you're here you're using the n-word yeah oh i know I know. Yeah. Well, it's always, I was always struck by like, when you grow up in a small town with kids that you go to kindergarten with, and then you end up in high school with them too. Like it, to me, it was always funny to think back, like the kid that was kind of like, just kind of an asshole in third grade is an actual hardcore delinquent. Like that was like, that was the beginnings of antisocial behavior. And now this person is actually, going to juvie <laughs> you, know, was, you know kids uh kids yeah. they become grown-ups and that's when it all goes wrong uh so you were you four years at u of i and and just doing theater the whole time yeah it's a four-year program and um it really uh, i couldn't get cast uh for the reasons i mentioned um i i got small roles, but I met these incredible friends. Yeah. Uh, and we, is form- it frustrating as you go along? I mean, are you like, are uh, you a little bit off? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was frustrating just the way life is frustrating. You know, it's frustrating. Like I really wish girls would kiss me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, but understanding why maybe they won't yet. Uh, right. Especially same- not at a funeral. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I, especially when I'm an altar boy serving right, mass, exactly. I, they're not allowed on, <laughs> up there. But um, I understood it; it made sense to me. And um, I had this really great friend, uh, uh, still a wonderful friend named Joe Faust, who we we became inseparable. Um, and he was really cool. He knew all the cool stuff. He was a really great actor and director, and he. Uh, I, I sort of became his his muse in a way where like at first he was he explained to me even he would do a play where he would direct it and not cast me in a role that I was perfect for. And I would say, What's what the hell, man? Like we're best friends. And he would say, When you're casting a play, you have to cast the best person for the play. 
and you're not that good of an actor yet. You're still learning. And this other guy is great. And I, I would say, well, you're, you're right. He is undeniably great. And so with lessons like that, I was able to say, okay, you know what? I'll build the set. I'll, I'll you know, do the small role. I did a lot of fight choreography. Um, and eventually, once we moved to Chicago, we all started a, a company called the Defiant Theater, which was this great irreverent company. Uh, and in into the first season, I finally got cast in like the lead of a show for the first time. And and it was, you know, it was, it was all part of my my learning curve. Uh, but I, I understood it and I was, I, I had a blast. I mean, um, there was also a whole, there was actually a year off in the middle of the four years, uh, because it's, it's a large tangent, but there's this incredible Kabuki theater adjunct <coughs> to, to the theater department. Um, our sensei, Shozo Sato, <coughs> was this master of the Zen arts who had moved over from Japan, and he taught this Japanese traditional theater style called kabuki. And we, uh, he, he would do plays like Shakespeare plays or Greek dramas in this traditional Japanese style. And then in our case, we did the Iliad. We did a show called Kabuki Achilles, and we ended up touring Japan and Europe and taking oh, wow. a year off to to do it professionally wow in a theater outside of Philadelphia called the People's Light Theater Company and so that the the years were just full of these strange bounties for a bunch of farm kids yeah we suddenly were flying to Tokyo um uh, so so it was it was an incredible life education even though i did i wasn't prepared you know again if it was a baseball team i just wasn't good enough to to start to starting. So, so yeah, I, yeah. I got in and knocked out a few pinch hits, but, uh, you know, but it, it set me up with a good set of fundamentals to the yeah. leap into Chicago. Now you're saying this in the comfort of having made it, you know, for lack of a better term, but when you're in school and when, you know, you're so sophomore into junior year and they're, they're casting another play and you get another three line part. Are you, are there moments of like, what the fuck am I doing here? No, you know, uh, it's interesting because that, that was a big part of the whole experience. And and uh, every year they start with 16 actors in the program. And the faculty are, are very discerning as they call every year that you, you get called into the to their office at the end of the year. And they say, listen, Beth, uh, the you're you're wonderful in this way and that way but i don't think you're going to make it as an actor and so so by the oh, time wow. you you graduate you're down to like six people yeah yeah and so that was that was prevalent but but the thing was i've always been blithely i've always been optimistic um i have a lot of confidence in my myself in my um in my work ethic and i knew the thing i knew was uh, I wasn't getting cast, but I knew it, it wasn't because I was without merit or talent. I knew it was just because I was uh, too n too much of a newbie. I, yeah. I, I sort of I was like uh, I haven't yet begun. Yeah, yeah. And these kids that are getting cast 
have been in place in the up in Chicago and the suburbs since they were eight years old. Like, oh, I see. And so it all made sense to me. Um, and I was, and I was just having an amazing time. Like the, the amount of, of education and culture that, that was, I was just dumping into myself. Yeah. Didn't leave much room for, for that kind of worry. Uh, yeah. I, I also, um, even in college, I worked in the scene shop and got paid. And so just, just immediately I was like, Oh, I'm going to work in show business. Like yeah. may, maybe I'll just have a scenery shop, yeah. but wh- whatever it is, this is my place. Uh, I, completely relate to that yeah and i think too i think for you too it was uh you were used to working in a working community you know mm-hmm. like a, on a farm and everything and it's like not, not everybody's the star but there's lots of work for everybody to go around and every play needs somebody to turn on the lights and hang them you know so yeah i i had the same feeling for me though it was more when i got to la and I just had this feeling of there's so many people here that work in show business and they're not all Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks or one of the Toms. Right. They're, you know, they're, they're they, Tom. Sometimes they're Tom Green. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for, for different periods of time. And, uh, but yeah, but you know, but you can build sets here and you can do, you know, when I got out of film school in Chicago, and I started working in production, it was like, oh, I could be a prop guy. Like I could definitely be a prop guy for the rest of my life. And it's kind of fun. Like, it's like a fun job. It's really you don't, fun. It, it's the hours are long mm-hmm. and it's, and it's t- always tenuous to be working freelance, but you know, no, but it's w- the actual doing of it is really fun. It's a creative endeavor. It is. Even if it's just a Montgomery Wards commercial or something. It is. You're, you're helping put on a show yeah. in one way or another. Yeah. I, I love the story of, um, my friend Dean Holland, who uh, he he won Emmys for editing The Office, um, uh-huh. and then he came to Parks and Recreation as our editor, but also started directing, and he ended up d- directing the most episodes of Parks and Recreation. And he's just this brilliant, brilliant comedy director and editor. He invented um, th- those. Uh, fast cut things in parks and rec where like it would be, you'd see Amy doing 17 takes like of improvising a joke. He, he w- was revolutionary. He grew up uh, on the East coast. Uh, one of the Carolinas wanted to be in showbiz, but like worked in restaurants and was like a, you know, a, a lower level chef and just want, but was like, I really, I, I need to be in showbiz. He, his buddy got him a job in LA as a chef at an editing house, like a post-production house. <laughs> yeah, where, yeah. And a nice one where like J-Lo would be doing a music video and Dean's the guy that would come in and be like, what can I get you guys? I can make right. anything, you know, I got a nice kitchen. He hung out with the editors in this post-production house. They taught him like after hours he would, he like bugged them and they taught him to edit and use an avid machine. And he started getting work editing, you know, just like as a hired guy on like reality shows became and sort of switched into the editing bay from the kitchen 
And then Greg Daniels, when he was creating the American office, wanted people from the world of reality. So through that connection, Dean was hired as an editor. And and so it's the same for me. I, I always say when people say, how my kid wants to get into showbiz, what's your advice? I say, become a woodworker. Yeah. Be, because that, like, find your thing, whether it's a chef or building scenery, that is your in. Yeah. And, and the biggest lesson I always tell people is whether you're Dean or me, get in there. Just, just show up. Wherever you are, find the theater doing the best stuff you can. It, maybe it'll suck, but still find the best possible place and then just just hang out. Like make them yeah. kick you off. See when they're striking the set, grab a broom and start sweeping. Yeah. Sh- and just show them, I want to be here. I will sweep. Right. And somebody will say, hey, what's your deal or whatever? And eventually they'll do a show about sweeping people. And <laughs> there you are. I know a guy. They're like, wait a second. Where's that kid? <laughs> <laughs> now, this is excellent advice unless you're a sociopath. Sure. And if you're like a sociopath, don't do this. Don't force yourself on a community theater and then, you know, no. creep them all out with your weird leering. Absolutely. Um, yeah. As only with, do it if you really kind of have some talent and some ambition. Don't don't do it if you're just and, a creep. And if they if you're creepy and they tell you to leave, leave. Yeah, leave. Yeah. I mean, I mean, but well, I mean, you're a little creepy, aren't you? For sure. Oh I'm, yeah. I mean, uh, until th- that was my big challenge. I mean, I was I think 38 when. Thanks to the temerity of Mike Schur and Greg Daniels casting me as Ron Swanson, up until that point, any job like that, the company is like, he's a little creepy. Um, <laughs> I know you because I think the first time I ever saw you was like on on uh, Deadwood being just a terrible person. Well, just a scumbag. Yeah, that's I mean, I come by it honest. <laughs> nice. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because. Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding your tail. 
Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a crow? As a trained theater actor, uh, which I am not, I'm just a bullshit artist who manages to fake it. Um, what? How do you feel about the... Like, how much do you learn in class opposed to how much you learn by actually doing something? Like- well, I think it's completely subjective. Uh, it's different for everybody. I mean, the things, you know, I would liken it to like a martial arts class where you're learning these fundamentals um, and you're learning like how to stand and how to breathe and and all of these skills, these tools that can apply to the thing, but until somebody jumps you in an alley, that's the thing. Then you're like, yeah. oh, okay, what of my training will can I bring to bear on this real yeah. life situation? And so, uh, I, I, I think that um, you know the 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 training was really for, was really great for fundamentals for me. All this, all the, all the sort of conceptual and theoretical stuff, like the Stanislavski stuff or the the method, you know, method yeah, acting. Yeah. Eh, I, I get it. Again, it's it's like a, it's an exercise. It's a sort of mental exercise. Like, yes, you have talked me through uh, the, the sort of techniques, you know, that I that I will use my human body and spirit and intelligence to portray, you know, this plumber on this show. Um, but really the Beatles song, uh, all you have to do is act naturally. Um, it, for me, it took that, that, that was the problem all through those years of college was I was trying too hard to, to do what they were telling me in class. And eventually in Chicago, it finally clicked that you don't have the most important thing is to appear as though you're not doing anything. Right. And and just take naturalism at its at its literal word, and and walk on stage, and people say, "Oh, that I I accept this portrayal," instead of like walk on stage and yeah, get low all, to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had I had this idea um, that I think uh, is is probably common. I because I came from this small town and I and I l- lacked much culture at all. I felt like a rube. And so I didn't have the self, uh, possession, the self-confidence to, to get a role and say, okay, like I, I'm great. I'll just do this part like me or some version of me. Instead, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm, I'm worthless. 
So I got to be real cool when I do this part. And people are like, why are you, why are you walking so strangely and like making that face? And Did you hurt your back? Yeah. Can you, can you put your collar down on your jacket? That's not done. You're just a plumber. Yeah, exactly. Why are you smoking a cheroot in this scene? Uh, the only thing I have, the only problem I have with that, because that's all excellent. Advice is uh, uh, Act Naturally is a Buck Owens song. Ringo oh. just covered it. Oh, thank you. you know? I'm, I'm sure. That, that that ran through my head as I said it. I almost slammed the computer shut and said, enough with this Philistine. Apologies uh, to Buck. Yeah. Uh, apparently, and he's one of my favorites, but apparently a terrible person. Just yeah. an awful, awful person. It's come, a bummer when you find that out. It get is. To this point and, you know. Have you had that? I mean, I'm not going to ask for names, but have you, like, there's people that you're surprised, like, oh, that person's a dick. Um, only a little bit, surprisingly little, you know? Yeah. Megan you get a good, I, hunt, a good feeling, you know? Yeah. Uh, we we have said after, Megan and I have been together for 20 years, and we've booked Megan Mullally of Will and Grace for the three people who might not know that we're married. Um Right. Between the two of us, we've been through lots of incredibly wonderful life roller coaster peaks and valleys. And uh, in, in hindsight, being in the business for decades, we've said, you know, we're pretty damn lucky. Like we haven't run into a lot of crazy people. And usually when people are horrible, uh, you know, you learn as an adult, like as a kid, I think you sort of um, simplify it and think, they, they're evil, like like a villain yeah. in a story. But then, as a as an adult, you come to learn. Oh, they're if if people are treating people like that, if they're such an asshole, it it usually has a really sad reason. Yeah, it means that person is in way more pain than we are, just being yelled at by that person. Yeah, they're damaged in some way. Yeah, yeah whether it's at home or they're often. I mean, I've, I've seen people be jerks to like the crew. Yeah. And it usually invariably has to do with that person feeling insecure about themselves. Like yep. they're, they're scared about the scene they have to do that day, or they're scared that they look, you know, three pounds too heavy for the gross superficial show business. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so they, you know, they snap at somebody and, and then, uh, and then I have them erased. I have them assassinated. <laughs> when I did uh, Elf with James Kahn, which was a fucking thrill for me. Hell yeah. And uh, because he truly was one, like the movie Thief, the Michael Mann movie Thief, being shot in Chicago when it, I was in high school. Oh. And it was one of the movies that made me feel like, here's movie making happening 45 minutes from me and James Kahn's in it. And holy shit, is he the coolest guy in the world? Totally. So I got to work with him and thank God he was just the best, just a prince and just so much fun. Kind of, you kind of had to work past an initial sort of, you know, I, I mean, for people at home, famous people get a barrier built up where they, are very skittish and very weird because if you're going to treat them like a famous person, frequently they recede. But if you treat them like a normal person, they open up. And if they're great, they're really great. Yeah. And he told me once about, he said, 
in however many movies he's done. He said, everybody that gives you, that has bullshit, you know, that's like, I won't come out of my trailer until they come out of their trailer or keeps everybody. He said, it's, he said, without exception, he felt it was always fear. It's oh, always yeah. just people that are just afraid. Yeah. And it's like, you know, everybody's afraid. The the guy, you know, the guy hanging lights is afraid that he's going to hang the light wrong. Sure. You know, the the per- the wardrobe person that's putting on this shirt is going to is worried that somebody's going to say, "Hey, the shirt's fucked up." You know, it's you just got to it's it's a job and it's a workplace and you got to do it. Well, um, it, it as in so many things and I, I learned this from my dad, you as human beings, we are guaranteed to fuck things up. Like yeah. no, like Michael Jordan or wh- like whoever sprint, you know, John Lennon, uh, writing as Venus Williams. Will they will never, they will never play a perfect game of tennis. Yeah. They, they will, will never write a perfect song. Yeah. They'll but, write some shitty songs actually. Yeah. Right. But yeah. And even the ones that are the closest, are sublime and and it's so that's why it's so amazing to watch these human specimens uh achieve uh, uh, attempt perfection but but by definition we will always fuck it up and those yeah. of us that aren't those superheroes will fuck it up even way more so so that's for me that's what always takes care of the fear it's like oh of course I, i'm going to come out of my trailer up and i may fall right on my face but um, I'll try and make you laugh, yeah. and then hopefully you'll let me do it again. Yeah. Even though you know I, I'm this I'm this particular version of a clumsy donkey. <laughs> clumsy donkeys are part of the story, you know. Yeah. Well, and it, you also have to look at it from the fact that like everyone there is invested in your success. Yeah. Like they're not they're not there to make you fuck up and to make no. you look like an idiot. They're there because you're part of a, of a communal effort. Yeah. And so they're there to facilitate you being as good as you can be. And I think that's the case with like, it doesn't matter if it's a film set, it's, you know, if it's an insurance office, if it's something you just kind of, I think it's such a better way to just, if you can convince yourself that the world is there to, to help you, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah, we're all in it together, and if and if uh, if you are someplace where there, there's some sort of backstabbing or mafioso tactics happening, yeah, yeah, find another job. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Life's yeah. too short. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned Megan. How did you guys um, tell us about your romance? Well, and if I'm not crying at the end of this, you you fucked up. All right. Um, uh, Kevin, the producer, can you give Andy that onion I sent over? <laughs> um, okay. Yes, we, we have people listening <laughs> to this to make sure that we don't say anything bad about Conan O'Brien. That's right. Uh, <laughs> slave driver. <laughs> um, Megan and I met in the year uh, 2000. Um, I had been in Chicago from about 93 to 97. And had a wonderful, rich time doing just all theater all, of all sorts. Big theater, little theater, um, even theater with chicken pox. Love hot dogs. It's a armor hot dogs. It's the theater oh, I get you. I kids get you. Okay. love to eat. I get it. You're right, right, right. That was a even terrible. theater with chicken pox. 
That is a deep, deep pull. Love uh, hot dogs. Well, you try. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so I was still so stupid and naive that um, I, things were going great in Chicago. I, I did a couple movies. I got my SAG card. Um, the movies that were shooting in Chicago and in Indianapolis. Which ones were those? Uh, one was an Andy Davis movie called Point Break. Oh, yeah. Uh, starring Morgan Freeman and Keanu Reeves played a physicist who um, had such a cool laboratory that he could uh, drive his motorcycle right into the lab, like a Chicago loft. Sure, of course. I played his building super. I had two scenes, uh, both cut from the film. Oh. But I got my SAG card. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then a, a great Sundance movie directed by Mark Pellington called Going All the Way, starring, this is 95? No, 96. Starring a young Ben Affleck, Rose McGowan, Rachel Vise, Jeremy Davies. Oh, yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. It, and I, I had it's kind of I, a sex comedy, sort of. Sort of. It's set in the fifties. It's it's based on a novel. Uh, the story is Ben Affleck was the town baseball star. He goes away to the Korean War and comes back like a commie. Like he he, he comes back really groovy. He grows a beard. Uh, and I, I had a wonderful antagonist role, if you can imagine, and. Um, <laughs> And the thing was, unfortunately, his beard was not a great job, uh, his fake beard. Yeah. It looked so bad that they cut like nine scenes of the beard storyline, which was where all my stuff was. Where you were, yeah. So I'm still still in that movie, but I just have a few like shouted things in the bar. Right. Specifically, hey, Gunner, you still planking DD arm, Brewster? (laughs) Like one of those... (laughs) One of those parts. Oh, but, that's gonna I, that line is gonna look so good on your funeral program. <laughs> Remember um, this, my um. But but I mean the for me like that was I, I drove down to Indianapolis. It was my first time working on location. My first time getting per diem. Yeah, where this other friend of mine uh, who was in the movie was like, okay, this is per diem. They give you a hundred dollars. Now we go back to our hotel. And I'm going to teach you what a filet mignon is. And I literally was like, oh, my God, the world is amazing. Uh-huh. So th- th- things were going well. And I, I decided to move to Los Angeles without knowing anyone in Los Angeles. Without you knowing, didn't know anybody. You didn't have anybody here, really? I knew, you know, I knew people very distantly. But yeah. nobody who, like, I had in my phone book. Uh and so, um, and was there something making you leave Chicago at that point or was uh, it just yeah. kind of like, Hey, it was more of a lark. No, it was, I just had this, this idea that, um, I could stay in Chicago and have a wonderful time making theater, but, uh, I, I, I've, I wanted to, I don't know. I wanted to keep, I don't know, going to the bigger world, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know what? I had a friend in Chicago who was 10 or 15 years older, who I really looked up to. He was kind of a big brother figure and he was, um, and he was sad. He was an alcoholic. Uh, and, and I really aspired to what he did theatrically, but 
that is a great sort of encapsulation is I felt like if I stayed in Chicago, I stood a very good chance of becoming him. Yeah. And, um, so, so I moved to LA ignorantly and I had done a couple little jobs for like a Nickelodeon show. So I had like a ton, you know, I had 3% of something going on. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the hugely ignorant thing was I just assumed that Los Angeles, the greatest gathering of writing and acting talent in the country would be at least as good of a theater town as mm. Chicago. Like it, it, that it didn't even occur to me to ask that question. And I got to LA and of course LA is also incredibly mercenary. Um, and so all of this talent is not there to do a goddamn checkoff play. Right. They're there to get a job in television or film. Yeah. And if they do a checkoff play, it's just because they want a job in television or film. Right. They're not there to do the, th- whereas in Chicago, you're doing the thing because you want to do the thing. Exactly. It's uh, that's, that's very well put. And so, um, so that just slammed me right in the face. Like you've moved to this place where everything that made my life rich and made me incredibly competent and, and practical um, and efficacious d- didn't count yeah. in Los Angeles. I had this great theater resume and I would get a nice meeting at like a studio and they would look at the uh, real nice theaters, Steppenwolf, Goodman, you know, yeah. Shakespeare rep and great roles. And they'd just be like, do you have anything on tape? Like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And this is the days of video cassette. Yeah. And I'd be like, no, people usually see me in a play. And then, and so, um, so I was really uh, in a nutshell that led to two to three years of like depression in mm. my late twenties, um, drinking too much, just like trying to find my way, working as a carpenter wherever I can. And, uh, finally I said, you know what? I have to do a play. Like, I know this isn't a theater town, but like, that's what, that's my life's blood. Um, I need to do a play and, and maybe that'll jumpstart something because otherwise I, I, I'm failing. Yeah. And I told my friends, like, I got to find a play. These two great casting directors named Nicole Arbusto and Joy Dixon, like casting directors are the unsung champions of all of us. Like, yeah, they knew this super cool, weird theater company called the evidence room. Then they were doing this play called the Berlin circle. And there's this role of an East German breakdancing soldier. It's, it's, uh, it's the Caucasian chalk circle and mother courage Brecht plays set at the, at the Berlin wall coming down. Oh, okay. Um, in the eighties. So it, by, Ch- by, uh, Charles me, who was this like collage writer, really cool writer. So it's, it's this crazy role about a guy with a big monologue comparing his phallus to his anus. Mm. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, like it's me. Right. <laughs> I, you know me so well. So I'm a prick and an asshole. I go in and audition for it. And, and long story short, because uh, there was some, some machinations, I get the part. The lead in the play is Megan Mullally, 
She's just finished her second season of Will and Grace. Uh, it's, it's the spring of 2000. I'm living in somebody's dirt basement in Silver Lake, and she's about to win her first Emmy that fall. Mm-hmm. The, and, and my wife, you know, who I adore and, and veritably worship, uh, she's in, so incredibly talented and has such amazing taste and discernment. She's amazing at picking shit. The fact that she rolled the dice on this muddy carpenter from somebody's basement to this day. I mean, after 20 years with her, I'm like, how the I know you like the the sandwiches that I've seen her pass up means there's no (laughs) way. So, I mean, so that's how we met. And we. Now, we, do you think did she have a hand? Did she have to pass off uh, like okay, you being cast? No, in fact, um, it w- it was this insular, cool, you know, uh, theater company in the Rampart District. They had existed for like four or five critically acclaimed theatrical happenings, you know, mm-hmm. before we got there. We were kind of the only two outsiders in a oh, ca- I see. in a cast of twenty. I see. So actually, Megan and I, and and the 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 machinations I mentioned were uh, the director didn't want either one, didn't want to cast us, <laughs> and and he had to be like talked into both of us. Um, so we, Do you know that going in? No. Oh, okay. No, no I was no. going to say that sucks. No, like oh, this guy doesn't want me. It was no. It was one of those things where he did a lot of work with the Actors Gang, which is a great company. Yeah we were sort of sibling companies for a while and mm-hmm. he, he lazily or comfortably wanted to cast, you know, the people he knew from this other company. I see. Um, and thankfully, uh, he didn't. Otherwise Megan might be married to Tim Robbins. Oh my God. Who's the founder of that theater company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be terrible for me. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It might, you know, you might've. Sure. You know, you might be living in a nicer basement than you were. You never know. You're right, yeah. Andy. Um, so it does. Is it romance right off the bat? It's, does it take some time? To, you know. You know what? It took. Uh, first, it was friends. You know, anyone who has ever been in church or a school assembly or any place where it's where there's a somber tone, mm-hmm. and and you have your friend or your cousin. And, and somebody farts or does something, it's the person that you're like, <laughs> that, yeah, you, yeah. that you're going to explode trying yeah. not to laugh. That sense of camaraderie is so delicious. It's one of the best things about working in the theater is the friendships that you make off stage or, yeah. the, or the, the confederacies that you develop with, with actors of a like mind. It's, the, the sense of mischief is so much fun. That's I always I always refer as just like want it, putting a priority on fun, yeah. like having fun. You you meet you sit next to people in something and you make some wisecrack and they look at you like, what are you talking about? And you think, oh well, okay, right. Next on to the next on to the next person who's going to like make fun of things with me. And then later at the at the uh, tea uh, and bagel table. Someone else comes over and says, "Hey, I heard that crack you made," or or they reference it in some way, letting yeah, yeah. you know 
they're, they're on, in it. Yeah, they're yeah. On board together. So we that's that's what happened was we just immediately were like fucking around. Yeah. And and became like like cracking each other up. Um, yeah. And 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 the thing was, I was pretty freaked out. Um, I I had been broke my whole life. Like my my family was poor, you know, uh, four mm-hmm. kids on a school teacher's salary. Um, and my mom became a labor and delivery nurse later, but still, you know, like a very frugal, very frugal household. Sure. And then I'm a broke ass theater troll, you know, from Chicago, from like storefront Chicago theater. And so Meg and Megan was driving a Range Rover at the time. <laughs> and, and had I, you seen, were you fully aware of? No. Of, yeah, no. I was also yeah. I was also in this stupid and let me here's a sp- sp- specific shout out to a certain mentality in Ch- Chicago theater, at least at the time. Uh, there were a couple defense mechanisms, and I think this is very applicable to all of life. The defense mechanism it's it's uh, um, provincialism, where yeah. that we would t- uh, reassure ourselves of certain things so that we would give ourselves permission to stay in Chicago and not move to New York or LA, which right. was scary. And, and so the, the provincial, the, the misconception was we would say things to ourselves like, Oh, New York, that's like Broadway's bullshit. Like, you know, that's, it's all, it's all for money. Like the, if you really want yeah. to do theater, go to Chicago. And the audience is all old people from the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then LA, I mean, and at the time, um, David Schwimmer was, it was a peer. He had a great company with friends out of Northwestern called oh, right. Looking Glass. There's, yeah. they're still extant. They're a fantastic theater company. Um, he had just moved to LA and, and he had just gotten cast on a show called, uh, friend, friendlies or yeah, yeah. The friends, friends, the, the yeah. friends, I think. And, uh, and so it was a real thing where people were like, when I said I was going to move to L.A., people were like, oh, you, oh, are you going to pull the Schwimmer? Are you going to go be like David Schwimmer? As though, as, as though, you know, it's selling out or something. Yes, be- yes. Because they're all committed to the, the religion of theater and, and the martyrdom of earning $12 a week, et cetera. So I, st- I still – I had that. Yeah. Even in Los Angeles, I I hadn't had a television. I actually have never really seen Friends or Seinfeld or a whole ton of other stuff because all these years I never had a TV. I just was 24-7 either working on a play, building the set, or at the bar. Yeah. That was my whole life. Yeah, yeah. So as an actor, you knew what was going on. You knew what shows were happening. Um I mean, I remember getting the advice to like, uh, and I went to my friend's house and recorded one episode of every show that I wanted to try and get on. So that if you got an audition, you pop in your episode of NYPD Blue and you're like, okay, that's Sipowitz. Yeah, yeah. Et cetera. So I've done the same thing plenty of times. Like, I guess I better watch an episode of that if I want to be on that. Yeah. And, um, and so I knew of Will and Grace, and I knew that it was like a hit. everyone was talking about it. It was a, a legendary comedy hit in the making. But I, 
when I met Megan, I hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen a second of it. And, and I still had this Chicago like rube mentality of like, look, I know you're supposed to be like a fancy TV lady, but, um, I'm not impressed. Like I'm from the theater. I'm from Chicago theater. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, (laughs) yeah, I didn't sell out totally range Rover. And, and then we got cast and then we met and then pretty quickly I like watched a couple of reruns cause, cause it was getting into the summer of reruns yeah. back when TV operated like a school year. And I watched it like, the, and it's funny, the first episode I watched, I was like, I feel so bad for these people. God, they're trying so hard. Like this is so ham fisted. And then the second episode I was like, eh, well, Okay, well, that was funny, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. By the end of like two or three episodes, I was like, "These are the funniest goddamn people I've ever yep, seen." Yeah, and how can I get this job? Yeah, and then, especially her and Sean. Yeah, like, oh. they're just, you know, they're. I mean, they're they're Laurel and Hardy. They're. I just, uh, I was like, I Sean was Jack, right? Yeah, yeah. See, I was like, what? Why isn't it? Instead, Will and Grace. Yeah, Yeah, why isn't it Jack and Karen? Because holy shit, they were fucking funny. I mean, you know, Deborah Messing and Eric McCormick are very talented, you know, but they're kind of leads. Right. Whereas, like, that's not my thing. I'm not into, like, good-looking people being kind of funny. I'm into, like, weirdos being really funny. Yeah, I mean, no no question. I I mean, the the whole... You know the whole company. I was always just amazed watching them make that show. But, but yeah, the, the uh, on the track team. You know, Megan and Sean were the were the pole vaulters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, well, you guys now you guys do because uh, we're I, we've been talking for a while here, and I don't want to keep you forever. Um, but you guys have been doing a lot of live stuff on your own, and I mean, and you've been. You've written, is it three books or four books now? Well, uh, four, counting the one that we did together. Yeah. And, and I mean, all of that stuff, is that just, is that just extra energy? I mean, is that just like, you can't stay home? Uh, you know, I, I guess do you I, live in a bad neighborhood. You need to get out of there. I think, um, I, I think I spent so much of my life, um, like the, the, the thing that I'm proud of uh, is my work ethic. Like the, the values that my parents instilled in me that survived through, I'm, I'm as flawed and fucking hedonistic as any dumbass. Uh, you've you know, been, you've like, been doing lines of Coke this entire interview. It's very, well, I like how you hit mute when you do the snorting. That just, but, that just know. keeps me at an even keel. Um, I understand. It keeps me up, frankly. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the, that's the one thing that I, because it's not, um, I don't know. It's, it, it's something like I, I will leap to sweep your floor or do the dishes or like, I I've come to understand, um, that that is more valuable. And I find that to be more charismatic in a person than, than any God given talent or beauty or gift. Yeah. It's, it's saying, I understand that if I contribute uh, if, if we all contribute to the best of our abilities, it's going to be way better for everybody. Yeah. That's, that's the big family sort of, uh, ethos. And, 
And so um, I spent so many years working so hard, just like building stuff and, and you know, uh, behind the scenes that then when Parks and Recreation kind of exploded my professional opportunities, uh, two things, w- the first thing that happened was colleges began to invite me to perform my stand-up for them. Uh-huh. Mistakenly, because I'm not a stand-up, I and and I demurred at the first couple invitations and, and said, no, I don't do that. Um, and then I was like, oh, wait a second. I, I would love to try to make 2,000 yeah. kids laugh. Yeah. So I started writing, you know, these shows that are – they're not exactly stand-up because they're not joke-heavy. But I write the show out and I do dumb songs on, on the guitar. Um this very talented guy named Mark Rivers, who was the drummer I know at, Mark, in yeah. Mouse Rat, yeah, um, on Parks and Rec. He he he's he wrote. I love this uh, fact. He wrote the theme song to Mister Show. Yep, and that was his big break. Like that brought him out from Boston, and he's a genius. He he wrote all the songs when Nick Kroll had his show, and he's. I mean, uh, all the songs for Parks and Rec. Like those yeah. are. That's just a sliver of his resume so he and i he is the hit maker uh i i write i love writing the stupid words and the ab yeah. rhymes and then he just dresses them up incredibly he's a genius um and so so i started touring um and it went well and and i still do it I, and and um rashida jones came to my show at largo uh gosh seven or eight years ago now and afterward, she said, I loved the show. I love I love your agenda that you're not just like telling fart jokes, but you're like uh, that first show called American Ham. I was trying to encourage the audience to use good manners and carry a handkerchief. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was like 10 tips for delicious living was the subtitle. Yeah. And um, and she said, I love your agenda. It sounds like you're reading from your book. And I thought, you know, there was a bunch of stories I couldn't fit into the show. So I asked my agent, hey, can I talk to somebody about maybe trying to get a book deal? So I met a bunch of people in New York, got a book deal with this great publisher called Dutton. Mm-hmm. Um, my my editor, Jill Schwartzman, who is like, you know, the unsung ringmaster of all my yeah. books. Um, and been through all with all of them with yeah, you? Yeah. In yeah. fact, I'm, I'm working on number five right now. Wow. Uh, and I'm so, so, so like it's, uh, I don't know. I don't understand. Um, I, I know I won't keep doing it forever, but like once I found out that they'll let me, like they'll pay me to write a book about something yeah. I love or care about. I was like, well, <laughs> once again, I'm getting away with something like, please. It's nobody- such an- don't tell them uh, yeah. that I would no, do this for free. It's such an incredibly healthy thing. It's just like, you know, you're you're a remarkably healthy showbiz professional. I think you are very much on the far, far onto the healthy spectrum of things, you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know you pretty well. I mean, maybe you're torturing animals in your oubliette somewhere but uh, well define torture i mean (laughs) i'm teaching i'm teaching this this, Um, you know the thing is uh 
I know myself and I know that, and, and like when I first moved to LA and I would hang out with like Chicago actor friend groups that would go to like a couple specific bars or coffee shops. Yeah. And I began to do that. And within like a week or two, I was like, oh, this is horrible. These are are like depression support alcohol groups. Yeah. And the all, uh, everyone's worth when you show up every day or every other day, you walk in and the question literally was like, Hey, did you book anything? Mm-hmm. And that's all anyone cared about. Did you get an audition? Did you get a callback? Did you get the job? And once a month, once every two months, one of the group would get three lines on an episode of Baywatch, and they'd be like, "Oh fuck, you know, it's it's, ama- it's just amazing." And I was like, "Holy shit! Like you're yeah, you're yeah. hanging your happiness on just the sheer garbage of this." And so once I once I uh, cotton to that, then I was like, you know what? I'm going to stay. I'm just going to keep trying to be like my family. And so, yeah, I'm doing show business. They have my headshot. They have my resume. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm here. They know where to find me, but while they're, they don't need me today, I'm not going to go to that bar. I'm not going to hang out and be like, Oh, you guys, it's so hard being an actor. I'm going to go fucking make some money as a carpenter yeah, and try to build a life so yeah. that in 20 years when I never got my big break, I still have had a rich and fulfilling life. Right. And you didn't just sit there in a reactive mode waiting to be blessed by the bullshit machine. <laughs> That's the thing is that you're like, you're waiting to be validated by this thing that when you're like, you know, there's a lot of even even three lines on Baywatch is a lot of fun, but three lines on Baywatch is still three lines on Baywatch. Yeah. When yeah. you came out here to do something, you know, it's it, it's just it's like, is that validation? Like, really, do I want to be validated by the minds behind Baywatch? Like, I mean, is that who I want to be recognized? Well, even by even the okay. Two things. One is in like 1998 or so, a friend of mine was old friends with John Cusack. And my friend was over in Silver Lake and Cusack was coming to pick up my friend to go play basketball. And um, that's the, I think it's the only time I ever met him. So I was pretty psyched, you know, like John Cusack was, was, has been a huge hero in my life. uh, The, the films he's done and he shows up, he, he busts in the door uh, without knocking, screaming at somebody on his cell phone. And this is before a lot of us even had cell phones. Yeah. And he's like, no, fuck you, you know, Morty. And and he's like, oh, you guys, sorry, Paul, are you ready? And, the, you know, they get it together. And he, he goes out the door and stands outside the door where you can still fully hear him. Just having this screaming fight. And then, and then it ends and they leave. And then later we find out from our friend, Paul, he was on the phone with his agent screaming about uh, a script that he had bought, you know, that he was developing for himself. And like they, uh, a studio was going to make it, but they were demanding these certain changes. And, and, and basically he's like, no, fuck you. Like I'm John Cusack. I'm making this movie. Stop 
you know, let me make my art the way I want to make it was yeah. what was what basically the fight was. And we just said, holy shit, like you can be John Cusack. Like, a, like at times he's the top, you know, white guy movie star yeah. of our lifetimes. And you're still screaming at somebody to, to get to do things in the way you'll find fulfilling. Absolutely. And that was such a huge wake up call where that has paid off again and again, where the the real life choices, the things you do with your family and your friends mean so much more than any, like I, I know three lines on Baywatch is one thing, but even if you make a great TV show and win like awards for it, I'm here to tell you, even that is like, once that happens, then you're like, "Mm, it doesn't fill the whole of like self-worth. It doesn't, yeah, it it doesn't come nearly as close as like your wife hugging you or your mom and dad saying, I'm proud of you or whatever. Or make, or honestly, for me, it's things like, Baking a really beautiful pie. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, or having a dog. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> you know, or going to the beach, you know, just uh, all this stuff that, because it is, it, it you're right too. It is like, it, it never, it, there's only a handful of people for whom they can truly do whatever the fuck they want. Like there's, there's just, it just it's you're not going to get that out of this and right. if you're looking for for that from this you're basically hamstringing your own path towards any kind of happiness yeah yeah you're barking up the wrong tree yeah well that was a pretty good you know the three questions are like what have you you know where where are you going what are you where you've been i forget them uh but there was one about what you've learned and that's a pretty good one you know like I'll tell you I mean, what. would you say that's kind of your basic sort of yeah. motto, you know, like that's what you'd want people to take away from the Nick Offerman experience? I can I can zero in on that. Um my my aforementioned sensei, Shozo Sato, who who has remained in my life and he's still a beautiful influence. Uh he married Megan and I with a tea ceremony um years ago. And uh one of the one of the greatest things he ever told me among all the Zen Cohen's and you know the wisdom that he would drop on us, he's told told me to always maintain the attitude of a student. Um, when in this life you think you're grown up and you think you've achieved mastery, or you're you're, you're like ah, I, I got promoted at work until I'm the manager, uh, I'm done. Now where's my fucking parade? Like when you mm-hmm. think you're done learning, you, that's when bitterness sets in. It never goes well. But if you remember that we're human, we're, we're, we're never done getting better. We're like, yeah, we can always be improving something about ourselves. That has served me so well to always be like, okay, what am I, even if things are going great, I'm like, okay, but am I paying enough attention to this? You know? things feel really good right now. So let me, let me balance that out by like being frugal and making sure my finances are taken care of or how's everybody in my family, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and sort of the thing that goes hand in hand with that when it comes to like, 
landing in such a crazy place as LA uh, and and sinking into like bourbon fueled depression and then and then sort of being able to steer my way out of it uh I just always encourage people I have that great show with Amy Poehler called Making It that's mm-hmm. uh, crafting like a crafting show yeah it's it, it's a you know it's like crafting fever catch it yeah which is t- super wholesome and and delightful but man I'm all about it because what what I've learned, luckily, is like the feeling, the dopamine release that you get when you do something like put together a jigsaw puzzle or make a beautiful pie or or like teach your dog to bring a stick back or, you know, grow a, a potato, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. That, to me, to my way of thinking, is as good as if the feeling that I get when I've played like a video game or done some other, you know, classic consumerist distraction of like, Mm -hmm. Oh, it'd be so awesome if we could do this all day long. But the, the tangible first examples, grow a potato, train a dog, make a pie. At the end of those, you have a fucking pie. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's woodworking more than anything. At the at the end of the thing, I have a canoe. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, and so that's just that's what I always encourage people to do is figure out what you can do. Figure out what you can do with your yeah. hands. Yeah, everybody's good at something, and it's if you figure out what it is, it you definitely can please yourself and your your role as a citizen. Because yeah. if you're growing potatoes, you're doing less damage. You're actually adding to yeah. to the world. Um, I that to me is what I keep trying to pay attention to. When things go well for me, and you know, I get some like I have some big year where I make a lot of money or something. Sometimes it occurs to me, oh, this is when like sometimes people buy a yacht when they you know have like a good good income. And I, and I'm like, man, fuck that. Like then, (laughs) then what do you do? Like go sit on your yacht and smoke a cigar places. You can go places in a boat. You know what I mean? You can. And I'm all, you can fish. Absolutely. I love going places in boats and fishing. Those are two things I sincerely love to do. And so, so I'm not dissing. I'm saying just for me becoming a yacht guy is no. I know what you. Mean. I'm. I'm giving you shit, but I mean, I know exactly what you mean. It is like, yeah. Or I mean, I feel that way as time has gone on about like really nice cars. Yeah. Like I just feel like at a certain point, like you know, like you can get a really nice Honda. Like you don't. The notion of getting like a Lamborghini or something like that to me is just like. What that couldn't you do something else with that money? You know, it's like, crazy. That, yeah, yeah. It's um, the the idea of spending more than my parents would ever spend on a house. Yeah, on a car. On a car. Yeah. But but again, we also have this sort of uh, bread, uh, meat and potatoes upbringing where yeah, if it has power windows, I'm like. Cool. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. made it. Well, and I and also it's it's time. Like it is like like because when I first came to LA and was making money, I was like, yeah, I should get the, the Mercedes and I should get the fast Audi and all, sure. you know. 
And I went through that. And then like, it was, especially was having children and realizing that like, no matter, and even now they're, they're teenagers and young adults. And it still is like, there's no point in like, it's like inviting a, a, you know, like inviting a wild animal into a pretty salon, you know, like they're just going to fuck it up. There's no sense in making it too nice. So. No, we, I mean, for, I don't know, at least 10 years now, uh, when we have needed, when we needed to get a new car, um, and Megan and I are both old fashioned. So we like keep our car for yeah 12 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when we needed to get a new car, <clears throat> we, we discern sort of the size, you know, like, okay, what's, what do we want practically? Yeah. And then thanks to modern uh, information, you can immediately just go and see, okay, what is the safest one of those? Right, right. Let's get that. Great. Yep. Power windows. Fucking A. Yeah. Let's party. All right. Well, power windows fucking A seems like a good place to leave this. Yeah, that's make make a t-shirt with that. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you so much for making the time for this. Uh, I appreciate it. It's an absolute I- pleasure. And it's specifically, I don't know if, um, if I've listened to a bunch of your episodes and I really enjoy it, um, your podcast, but I, and, and I, I've heard a lot of people say, um, this is so great because, you know, across your career that Conan, the, all of the iterations of Conan's show, have been where people started or also people uh, that did like improv with you in Chicago or all that stuff. I'm completely ignorant to all that shit. Um, But uh, just because I, I didn't know about comedy until like I was 34. I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. See, I didn't know about theater when I was in Chicago. There's this vibrant theater scene that I was like not aware of because I was in my world. But but the thing I love about this and and this I said this I think when you were on our podcast also is specifically you specifically like you are and I don't mean I mean this as a compliment you're the Ed McMahon of our of our day yeah um, categorically um, yeah I, yeah no I don't have any that's it's just true right yeah uh, some might take Ed McMahon as a slight um, yeah. but. But the thing is, to get to have an uninterrupted – like, that's the thing. You never get to talk enough to Andy because old too tall redhead keeps yeah. butting in because old, it's his show. Old, yeah, old never stops needing. Yeah. Yeah. Excuse old, me, guys. More, more, more. Let me talk in one of my funny voices. <laughs> Come on, man. Oh, thank God you get it. Oh. <laughs> Oh my God. That's the only reason I do this. It's uh, just, you know, it's again, like you said, they don't need to pay me to do this. I just do it just because I have so much to say. <laughs> uh, now, listen, I, I can't, I am very, very happy. And I have talked about this before uh, to be number two, being number one is just too fucking much. Yeah. You know? I've been, you know, I've been the star. I've been number one on the call sheet on television shows before. And, you know, they're mostly kind of like, uh, you know, I wasn't an owner. I was, I was basically, I was signing the backs of the checks, not the fronts of the checks, you know? Right, right. And 
just having been along for the ride through different iterations with Conan and seeing the pressure that's on Conan to be Conan on Conan and the Conico Conan, Conan, Conan. Yeah. I just am like, I could, I would just be, I would feel like I was breaking out in hives yeah. just because of the responsibility and the attention. And it's just, I like to be left alone. It's, you know? it, yeah, it's, I, uh, I agree. It's, it takes a very special uh, chemistry to, to pull off the dynamism that Conan yeah. does. And I think well, he's we're, just, we're both glad to stand next to him. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he has a, he really truly does have like a bottomless well of energy. He, and he really does love doing this. And he's really kind of curious about everything, you know? Yeah. And I, and I'm curious, but not to that level, you know, not to the level where I, I just don't have the energy. <laughs> you know, the med- maybe I've diff- under a different medication. I mean. yeah, exactly. Well, together yeah. we'll we'll wallow in this laconic space. Precisely, Midwestern all the way. Well, Nick, I love you and I miss you and I and, and give my love to Megan. It is Megan, right? It is Megan. And um, and your little doggies. And thank you, Andy. Love you too. And and this has been an absolute treat. Thank you so much, Nick. I'm glad you did it. And thank you all for listening to the three questions. Uh, Come back next time where I'll talk to somebody eh, not as good as Nick. Listen to this charming guitar riff. I've got a big, big love for you. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galit Sahayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been... A Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.